1: Thank you, Roll Scoop listeners, for tuning in today for a chance to get to know Lee Jenkins, a full time author, speaker, and consultant with From L to J Consulting, located here in Arizona in Scottsdale. Dr. Jenkins has published five books on improving the education system. His most recent publication just launched last week and is titled How to Create a Perfect School Maintain Students' Motivation and Love of Learning from Kindergarten through 12th Grade. Lee, are you ready to give us the scoop?
0: I'm ready. Just fire away and I'll I'll give you uh, all the opinions I've got.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, first, before we get started, can you give our listeners a bit of information about you and your background?
0: Yes. um, My career was in the California Public Schools. We've been uh, residents of Arizona the last 18 years. Uh, We actually moved here for the Phoenix Airport. You can believe that. It was when I decided to do uh, consulting full time and we needed that. So, but in, in California worked you know, all the jobs, teacher, principal, superintendent. In the middle of that time, I did spend five years in Cavallis, Oregon as a department head and, and faculty member at Oregon State University. Um, but probably the most significant thing and the reason we're talking was as a superintendent in uh, 1992, uh, the American Association of School Administrators sponsored a four-day seminar with 92-year-old W. Edwards Deming. Uh, he's the American um, that took Japanese management to Japan because Douglas, Douglas MacArthur said they couldn't make anything that worked. And uh, we got to hear him for four days. Amazing, at, at 92 years old. He, wow. he just captivated us for four days. It was the only time he ever spoke directly to educators they were often sprinkled in the audience, but this was specifically for educators through uh, AASA. And and so, and, and just one thing that connects to, to the introduction on my books on the system, Deming taught that when things go wrong, 96% of the time, it's the fault of the system that's in place. And 4% of the time, somebody just messed up. <laughs> so if you talk about fixing the system, then that seems like most of our issues could go away if we just got the system right.
1: I, I know you've written a number of books. What prompted you to share your ideas with the educational community?
0: Well, uh, because we complain about the, what we see, okay? We complain that, you know, lack of motivation in students, for example. I mean, it's obvious and it's apparent. Um, but we don't often dig down to what is the root cause of it. Uh, Deming said um, in, in Japan, when things go wrong, they keep asking why until they find out why. He said in the United States, we ask why until we find the who. Hmm. And, and so digging down and finding out okay, yes, it's granted that uh, the majority of the kids in high school. Are not motivated to come to school to learn. In fact, very few are. Right. Um, so, so it's easy to blame the kids or to blame families or whatever. But, but what what happened? Because in kindergarten, you know, just uh, twelve years earlier, they were highly motivated to learn. So what happened? Um, so that that's really what this book, How to Create a Perfect School, is about. And 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 in essence. That's what all the other books are about, striving to to figure out what can we do about this issue. If almost every student from an an intermediate, middle and high school grades was as excited to learn as they once were in kindergarten, what percent of our problems that we face would still exist? Right, true. I mean, some would, obviously, but... A lot of them, you know, truancy. A whole lot of bullying would disappear. Absenteeism uh, goes on and on. Uh, if if they really wanted to learn, if if we switch the system instead of um, the teachers pressuring the students to learn, the students were pressuring the teachers to teach more. I mean, what would that do to our problems?
1: It would completely rewrite the whole system.
0: It would rewrite the whole system. Uh Uh-huh. It would. So the first part of the book on how to create a perfect school is how um, it says, instead of motivating kids, we need need to stop motivating them to learn. And we need to find out if they lost their motivation, why? And restore it. Do our best to restore their motivation. And but basically try to figure out what's in the system that we inherited that's causing this. Um, another quote from Deming, he, he asked us in the audience when I was there, he said, um, who has the most control over a ship crossing the ocean? Well, we guessed the captain. He said, no. He said, well, then we guessed it must be the navigator. He said, no. He said, well, it must be the guy in charge of the engine room. No, we give up. So he told us. The person who has the most control over the ship crossing the ocean is the one that designed the ship,
1: because mm.
0: it'll never be better than it was designed to do. So then that causes me as an educator to say, well, who has control, who has the most control over the education system? And I, I would say that is probably the person that designed the weekly spelling test, And the chapter test. Right. Because it's those two things that tell the students, you know, you really don't need to learn this. You just need to know it for Friday. Now the teachers don't say that to the kids, but they, they figured it out in about a month of first grade. I don't know these, I don't need these words after Friday. I just got to have mom or dad help me on Thursday night and then I'm good to go. So, I mean, just this week, um, uh, I I talked to a young woman who just uh, uh, became, she's a nurse. she has been working as a veterinarian assistant for eight years, finished her nursing degree, passed her exams, going to start in in a week or two her first job as a nurse. She said, that's all it was, all the way, all of her science classes, all the way through was cram and forget. I said to her, "When you were studying for your ex- your exams in order to be certified as a nurse, was there anything in there that you were learning new for your exams that you hadn't already learned and then forgotten in, in your classes all the way through? No, not one thing. Hmm. So basically, if you just remembered what you what you answered on chapter tests all the way through nursing school uh, and and through uh, high school." then you wouldn't need to study for the exam. Just remember what you already had answered. But no, we don't, we cram and forget. He, I said, well, how did you learn all this? So well, the main way I learned it was uh, when I was uh, in college, I got hired as a tutor to help uh, freshmen and sophomore when I was a junior and senior. I learned it through teaching. Hmm. Okay, um, so, so who has control over our system? These people who are long gone, who invented the weekly cram and forget Process.
1: So, speaking of process, introduce us to your process. Okay, this came
0: from Dr. Deming when he spoke to educators. So, the question is, if we, if if we, um, if we want to know how kids are learning, we want to know how they're doing, and we realize that chapter tests are a measure of short-term memory, then how would you, how would you structure school? To measure long-term memory, how would you measure it to really what they know? And here's what Dr. Deming said. And by the way, your listeners need to know this is crazy. It's not gonna. It's going to sound like this is a, not a not a wonderful idea. And yet, I've done this for uh, well since 1992. The students love it, and the teachers love it. So here's what he said. Number one, tell the kids what you're going to learn, what you're going to, what they're going to learn for the whole year. Now, with the language that I've learned from John Hattie in the last couple of years, we would list, we would call this in his in his term surface learning. What is a surface learning you're supposed to know by the end of the year? And then uh, we would count that up, see how many how many items there are. In mathematics, math standards it's probably about fifty a year. Uh, in first grade spelling, it's 150 words typically. In uh, first year of a of a modern language in high school, the vocabulary is probably around 400, but you, you give it to the kids. This is what you're gonna learn this year. Um, the public thinks that that would be an easy thing for teachers to do. Just tell them what they're gonna learn this year. Uh, having spent so long in education, I know that's the hardest thing to do, to write it all down in student-friendly language, this is what you're gonna learn this year.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So once you've done that, that's the hard job. Then we assess them um, almost every week, not quite, we do it seven times a quarter, on a random sample of what they're supposed to know at the end of the year. So if I were to just take a, a world history exam example from Tucson, the teacher uh, took, uh, she wrote down 65 historical events that they were going to study that year. Just wrote them down. Said so this this is the this is the this is the event. Not much more about it. Here it is. Then she, so that's 65. The square root of that's 8. So every week she pulled 8 of those at those items at random and the kids were to put them in chronological order. They had no clue in the beginning. They had no idea. But you keep doing that and by the end of the year it didn't matter which 8 she pulled out at random, they could put them in order. They had a sense of the world's history. They knew how it all fit together. So it works for every subject, every grade level. And again, it sounds crazy, but it works. And the kids feel, and then we honor them in simple ways when they have an all time best, when they do better than they've ever done before.
1: Go deeper into Um, that. What does that mean? Doing better than they've ever done before.
0: Okay, so let's go back to the the history teacher, okay? So she pulls eight out and you have to put them in order. And let's say that of the eight, two of them were in chronological order. Now they were like the, the third thing that happened and the eighth thing that happened were in the number three spot and the number eight spot. So the kid on a graph, graphs I got two right. And the next time you give the quiz, the kid got one right. Next time you give it, the kid got two again. The next time you give it, the kid got three right. That's, that's the student's all-time best. They did better than they've ever done before. They worked so hard to get our all-time best at all grade levels. They won it.
1: Mm-hmm. It's,
0: it's, it's um, a principal, elementary principal that I've worked with a lot in Fremont, Nebraska. Diane Benito is her name. She said, I love it. When kids get their papers back, they don't look to see how many they missed, They look to see if they did better than they've ever done before. Changes the whole, it changed the whole dynamic. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I just want to do better than I've done before. I'm doing a lot of work in Rio doso, New Mexico right now. And I was in a a fifth grade. We're doing this with math fluency. They had 40 questions a week in math fluency. Every kid in the room could tell you exactly how many they had to get right on the next quiz to have their all-time best. Every Mm -hmm. one of them. Then there was a student in the room who obviously was struggling in math and towards the spring of the year out of the 40, I think she had 13, right? The whole class was so happy for her because that's the best she'd ever done. Also from Dr. Deming. And I would have never, ever thought of this on my own. I wouldn't have thought of that random sample. I mean, I, I knew that uh, testing short term memory was not successful. There's a lot of teachers who've given up on, um, the short-term assessment but they don't know what to replace it with okay. but i so so it's not hard to know it doesn't work i wouldn't have ever thought of the random sample that took a statistician to tell me that
1: mm-hmm.
0: but then what he said that else that i would have never figured out is add up the total correct for the whole class so think about it you've got the head football coach is also a science teacher If mm-hmm. the head football coach walks out on friday night and the scoreboard's not there he's frustrated what happened to the scoreboard? How are we gonna know what's going on? And then when he goes back to his science classroom on Monday, it doesn't ever dawn on him that you would add up the total for the whole class and all of his science classes and see how we're doing. Are we doing better than we've ever done before? The problem is that we have a fixed mindset uh, education structure. And it's very hard to fit a growth mindset process into a fixed mindset system. Okay? And my book, by the way, combines uh, Carol Dweck, uh, John Hattie, and Edwards Deming. It's a blending of the three.
1: If, if I was a teacher that was looking to implement this process into my classroom, what are the challenges that I might fi- uh, face and how might I overcome those?
0: First, the biggest challenge is time to write down what you want to know by the end of the year. And then, um, uh, it is re- remembering the graphs because there's several graphs um, to do, and if you've had if you've had an in-service, then you know what they are. Uh, if you haven't, uh, the book explains it. It or you can go on my website, and there are a number of videos, live videos taken of classrooms implementing. There's a, there's a first grade, a fifth grade, a seventh, a ninth, and a twelfth grade where we've actually videoed the assessment process.
1: Hmm.
0: So, so if we go back to the structure of the book, the first thing is um, how do we maintain intrinsic motivation and how do we measure it? And intrinsic motivation is a combination of effort and joy. When people are intrinsically motivated, they love what they're doing and they work hard. So that's what we measure is intrinsic motivation. Then the next part of the book is, what do we do in schools that destroys intrinsic motivation? And one is, uh, the chapter title is, data are like baseball bats. A baseball bat can be used for joy or can be used for harm. So we have to look, we have to uh, unlearn, and unlearning is twice as hard as learning. So when you talk, ask the question about the teacher beginning, you have to unlearn the things that are destroying intrinsic motivation. Uh, one is the way we use data. Right. When Jack When Jack Canfield interviewed me, uh, it's a, that video of his interview of me is uh, on my website. He's people recognize his name from the Chicken Soup for the Soul books, and he said he went to a military school from fifth grade on. And every time they took a test, the teacher posted it on the wall. Here's the best, the best score in the room, the second best score, the third best, the fourth, all the way down to last place in the room. That's data for harm. Right. He said maybe the first and second and third place kids thought it was a good idea. Nobody else did. (laughs) Yeah. So so we wouldn't we wouldn't be that cruel now. But we do think I've seen it just as cruel. um, Yeah. Now, maybe maybe it's it's uh, more cutesy now. You know, there's a a gumball machine for every kid in the room posted on the wall. And when you do something like that, you're supposed to do, you get one of your gumballs colored in. Well, when you walk in, it's obvious who's got the most gumballs and who has none yet. Right. So it's, it's the same thing as what happened to Jack Canfield when he was in, in the military school from fifth grade on up. It's just that it's now cuter. But it's the same pain. So when you say what are obstacles to overcome, the first one is how, how do we use that for joy? Number two is how do we make sure that the kids don't think that it's a game? If we just have to try to outsmart the teacher, uh, you know, the cram and forget system. But it's real learning. Uh, Another one is, how do we stop giving incentives?
1: Hmm.
0: Because um, I've asked in my seminars, um, in general, how many, you know, sit with your table at your table, how many incentives do kids receive in your school every day? And the range goes from two to 20 incentives a day. So if it's five, that's the most common number I get. That's over 10,000 incentives between kindergarten and 12th grade. They're not working. If, I mean, if incentives were working, you and I wouldn't be talking right now. They're not working. So we have to uh, stop um, bribing the kids, and and they see it as manipulation. We either manipulate them with bribes or we manipulate them with fear, but it's not real. That's the first thing the teacher has to overcome is to say, I'm, I'm not going to anymore do those things that destroy the kids' love of learning. And then I have to replace each of those with something else. So instead of giving kids incentives, we honor them for doing better than they've ever done before. It's like the seventh grade teacher, uh, his video is on my website. Um, it's, it's called uh, Better Outcomes, Happier Students. And you see when the students have an all-time best, they go up to the teacher in the seventh grade, they do a high 10 with the teacher and write their name on the whiteboard. That's it. It's nothing huge. It's a, it's, it's, it's a thank you. I'm proud of you. You're the better than you've ever done. We've been in this room for, for five months, and that's the best you've ever done. Congratulations.
1: Along those same lines, if a teacher were looking to imp- implement this process why might they fail what are some best practice advice uh, tidbits that you can give us
0: they would uh, fail by uh, doing there's, there's a number of graphs that we do and they would fail by sitting down after school doing all the graphs themselves and then say there's not time to do all these graphs when in fact the kids Want to do the graphs? They do them,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so that's one. Um, the uh, another way to fail is to take too long. This is this is quick and easy. What do you know? This that's that's one. Okay, um, did not let it take too long. If a teacher were to start with spelling, uh, first grade does fine. But if you, if you start with spelling in second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth grade, you have to really talk with your parents about what you're doing because they don't understand that they've they're been pressuring their kid to get 100% in short-term memory every week. And now all of a sudden the teacher is measuring uh, long-term memory. And if I pull 24 words at random out of the 400, And the kid gets seven right and then gets eight and then gets 10. They have a hard time seeing how that's growth, how wonderful that is. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: (laughs) So it takes the spelling is the only one where we get parent complaints. Because it's so ingrained in our society that if you're a good parent, you study spelling on Thursday night.
1: Right. To date, what are the successes of your process? And and can you give us your most inspiring success story?
0: Okay. Let me give you a story for it and I'll tell you the success. Okay. okay. This story happens over and over and over. Um, and let me, let me talk about just a basketball example. First, to help people understand it. Let's say that you're a marginal athlete and you're mostly on the bench, but the coach puts you in and you, uh, you make a free throw and the team and your team wins by one point. The marginal athlete to, brags to everybody that'll listen. It was my point that won the game. I did it. Right. That's true. That's what happens. Okay. So when we add up the total for the whole class and the class has an all time best by one and a struggling student goes from four right to five, right? Says to everybody, it was me chest pump. I did it. If it hadn't been for me. We wouldn't have had an all time best. <laughs> And when the class has an all-time best, then everybody in the room gets to celebrate. It's a simple celebration. It can be um, uh, one of the ones that people who, teachers who love to sing in the elementary school, they will um, sing a song with rounds. And they sing the first round, the first all-time best. Next time the class has an all-time best, they sing two rounds, the next time they sing three. Um, I ask high school teachers, what would your kids most like to do when the class has an all-time best? They said they would like two minutes the next day to flip their water bottles.
1: <laughs> wow. Okay.
0: That cost, cool. cost a penny,
1: right? Right.
0: But they get to celebrate together for two minutes and then go back to work. We had more right as a whole class than we have ever had before. The stories um, go from the, 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 uh, the individual student, the class, the grade level sometimes, the department, and then the whole school celebrating. So I'm telling you stories and I'm gonna give you the results uh, in a minute, the actual data. But um, a teacher in, as a principal in uh, South Sioux city, Nebraska, the whole school had their all time best because they were all doing uh, two or three subjects together as the whole school. So you add up the total for the whole school, the kids go around and get the numbers from every teacher they don't interrupt the class, but they, they, know, they have a system to know where to, how to get that. and they added up and the whole school had an all-time best. So the principal said, okay, to celebrate that we had an all-time best as a whole school, um, next Monday at nine o'clock, I want every teacher to change classrooms with another teacher for five minutes and share some, share a favorite story, poem, um, song, whatever you want to share. five minutes. That's it. So now the data. I thought effect size was just beyond me, my ability. So we created an effect size calculator. Kids fill it in as young as first grade. And every quarter they know their effect size compared to the 0.4, which is the average effect size from 250 influences on student learning. And we're getting almost six times the learning From 311 classrooms that I collected data from. Wow. Uh, Some elementary, some middle, and some high school.
1: That's significant.
0: It is. There's nothing that John Hattie's done that is that high.
1: But my work is
0: not going to be in his research because all of the research studies that he has, um, they're researching one influence only. And there's about... Twelve of the top influences built into what I teach.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So obviously, if you combine twelve of the top influences into one process, you should get a higher effect size than any one of them individually. So, um, so and the kids really understand that. Um, the cover of my book is a first grade teacher. Um, she's showing explaining effect size to her kids. She shows she has four Unifix cubes in one hand, which is the average learning point four. and then she has 23 in the other hand, and said, "This is how much we learned this year." <laughs> they can see that. Right now, other grades, other grades, they understand the ratio. You know, they, it's easy, but they care. Um, Alan Culp, I mentioned earlier from Anthem, that the seventh grade history that is in the video. Uh, he, I was at his school, and I had been in two classes and. I was ready I had lunch and taught things. I said and I was ready to leave. And he said, No, you gotta stay for the third period coming in after lunch because their effect size went down. So so I was in there and he said, How come our effect size went down? And they admitted to each other, we got prideful and lazy and just thought we had it made.
1: <laughs>
0: and it showed up that we went down, and they said, We are not gonna let this happen ever again. And they didn't, and their effect size Ended up at eight or nine or ten times at eight, nine, ten times the average at the end of the year. Wow! They they just they were just uh, chagrined that that happened to them. Part of what goes through my mind is, we have all of these ways of extrinsically trying to motivate kids, but we need to have a bigger collection of ways to feed their intrinsic motivation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When you see your all-time best for yourself, the class or the school that feeds your intrinsic motivation um, with all time best. When you see the effect size for the class that feeds your intrinsic motivation, you want the, you want it to get better. So so that's, that's what we're looking at is ways to feed their intrinsic motivation. And the last part of the book, how to create a perfect school, the last part is called polishing perfect. And it's all instructional ideas. Things we can do that feed on their intrinsic motivation, and I'll just give you one example. Um, I learned this from a West Virginia teacher where I was working there. But the the um, in high school history, every time the teacher gave an assignment, he said, "Here's three ways you can prove to me you've learned it. If you've got another idea how you can prove to me you've learned the history, um, come talk to me." And um, his favorite example was the student who, in 11th grade US history, completed all of her history assignments for the whole year with political cartoons. The the kids are really in charge of learning. We're not. Okay. We would want uh, teachers, when they have their list of uh, of, uh, surface learning for the year, then we would want them to um, jot notes off to the side and that's a good use of PLC time. Mm-hmm. If, if you've got three teachers at a grade level and they have the and they've agreed on the same list, of, then on the, you have two columns on the paper and one column is a surface learning learning to the left. And to the right, we brainstorm deep learning uh, assignments we can give uh, for each of those surface learning topics and they can be used for individual kids or they can be used for class assignments that you don't know in the beginning when you're, when you're brainstorming. Mm-hmm. So if you say to a kid, um, two kids and say, you know what, the fire marshals is coming in, in a week and uh, they only let you have 25% of the surface covered with paper. Uh, can you calculate in this room? What, what percentage of our uh, wall is covered with paper? You have to know the surface learning. You have to know about percentage. You have to know about, calculating area so the surface learning comes first you can't just skip it like some people advocate and say oh, we're not we don't care about all that stuff we just look it up on the internet no you have to know the surface learning and now we're going to give you deep learning questions how much did that sidewalk cost outside our classroom uh, what what fractional part of the basketball court is inside is, is outside the three-point line and again, Alan Culp's room, 7th grade. Um, there, there's a, the 7th grade teachers, there's four of them. And they're all using the LTJ process. And so when I drew John Hattie's triangle on the board of surface and then uh, deep and then uh, transfer, and we talked a little bit about each, they knew their key concepts were uh, surface learning. They knew that there were kinds of things that uh, Mr. Culp would ask them that was deep. They wanted to talk about transfer. Hmm. That they were just so they couldn't stop. They interrupted each other. Tell me about transfer learning because they had key concepts lists in their other classes. And they said, "Yeah, this one is in history. It came up in science class." <laughs> and then, and then in English, this came, this came up in math. They were they were just enamored with transfer learning because they they had. The, the, what they were going to learn was in their long-term memory. They remembered it.
1: What supporter resources are available for schools to tap into if they wanted to start the l to j process?
0: okay um the the booklet that um, is on my website is eight dollars is all It's called "Let's Fix Spelling." And and if you're teaching anything, you're teaching just forget that it's about spelling and, and fit in your subject. Mm-hmm. But I did that because that's where kids learn to cram. Mm-hmm. And if a school fixed that, fixed spelling, they could send kids on to the middle school not ha- having never learned how to cram. Um, but so that's one resource. There's the book I mentioned, and it explains it in great detail how to create a perfect school. Then there are videos. Um, It's, uh, if you go to the bottom of my website and click on the the icon for YouTube, it then, and then video, you'll see all these videos of, I've mentioned earlier five classrooms that we've videotaped, first, fifth, seventh, ninth, and 12th. And then then each of those five teachers are interviewed. And so it's me interviewing them and they give more details. Um, Then another way uh, to start Is I I hired somebody to write math fluency quizzes for me based on everything I've shared with you. And they're there from first grade through eighth grade. $6 for a teacher to have those. And it's one of the, it's a two minute time quiz every week. But it's one of the simplest ways to implement the L to J process because everything's done for you. There's really no key concept list to write down. There's, it's all done. But then you have to you, as you read through it, there's a booklet that comes with it. it's about twenty pages long. It tells you how to graph the process and and add it all up and everything so that the kids get the idea of a growth mindset instead of a fixed mindset. And once you've got that process down, you can apply it to other other classrooms. I mean other subjects. And if a school is doing this, they need to align the key concepts. So whatever, Whatever key concept the fifth grade teacher has, the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, all the way to twelfth grade, they can't have that concept anymore. It's done. You can't write write the same concept in multiple grade levels. It's only on one. But then when we do the quizzes, we build in the review. So the math fluency quizzes, for example, if you look at the eighth grade math fluency quiz, um, there are even first grade questions on there.
1: Hmm.
0: Not much. Of course, but uh, you know, in the United States, when the kids get to third grade, the teacher says, "Uh, now we're starting multiplication. And the teacher doesn't say, you can forget all the add and subtract you learned in first and second grades. Teacher doesn't say that. But the kids soon figure out, figure it out. I don't need to remember add and subtract anymore. We're on multiplication. (laughs) So on these quizzes, when you have the third grade quizzes, there are are add, subtract uh, questions as well as some multiplication. We never leave it. They're expected to remember it from year to year.
1: Lee, if anyone wants more information about what we've talked about today, how can they get in touch with you?
0: The easiest way is my email address, and it's Lbell J. We just talked about that. So it's lee at lbellj.com. Six letters, the letter L for the L curve, the bell for the bell curve, the J for the J curve.com, lee at lbellj.com. And, and uh, that's probably the best way. Uh, and then to say, uh, you don't have to, people don't have to write out all their questions. I think the easiest is to say, I heard this uh, podcast, and I'd like to talk to you some, uh, can we set up a time to talk? That's, that's probably the easiest the best way.
1: Well, Lee, thank you so much for being involved with the podcast today. I want to let all the Rural Scoop listeners know that Lee's contact information will be available in the show notes, so you can check that out at the Arizona Rural School Association website at org, and get more detailed information on how to get in touch with him. Thanks again, Lee, for talking with me today.
0: Well, thank you. This is a joy. I, uh, I think you can tell I like doing this. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, and and you know, it's because you see pain out there, and if you know some solutions to reduce the pain level, let's do it. Absolutely.